The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. You people, you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. CW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to Nitro Nights, a WCW look back podcast via the SJP World Media Network. My name is Sai. And joining me, as always, is the wrestling encyclopedia himself. You can buy the T-shirt, Scottish Danny. How are we doing, my friend? I'm doing very well, sir, this week. How's yourself, mate? Not too shabby, bird. Not too shabby. Uh, looking forward to progress, I think. Progress indeed with our watch along, because things, they are a-changing, as we will get into in this episode of Nitro. And the episode of Nitro we are looking at today, as always, follows on from last week. This is the May 13th, 1996 episode of Monday Nitro. Another defeat in the ratings for Nitro. This episode received a 2.3 in the television ratings. And Monday Night Raw received a share of 3.5. So again, we're back to similar sort of numbers, Danny, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. It's like the progress is showing there and let's see what's going to happen. Exactly, bud. Exactly. We are told at at the top of the show, by our commentary team that the main event that should have happened last week between Lex Luger and the Giant for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship will definitely happen this week because to make sure he doesn't miss his plane or get a flat tire or whatever happened, uh, Luger camped out in this time. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing when they make the reference of camped out, they mean he just stayed there to make sure that he didn't, you know, have any similar issues to the previous week. But when they said camped out, I had in my head, like when tickets go on sale somewhere or like back when I was a kid and a certain album would go on sale, people used to stand outside HMV or R price or wherever in the night to go and get this, this new LP. I I kind of had an image of Lex Luger in a little two man tent in the car park of the arena for some reason. That's exactly what you got. Uh, we see Lex Luger <laughs> sitting outside, camping outside with his little um, fruits, uh, vegetables, um, his little book and his little uh, uh, quilt and pillow he had. And um, I think there was something to do with exercise there as well, if I'm not mistaken. But as someone who does a lot of camping, 
throughout the year. Um, I thought Lex Luger's setup was amazing. <laughs> Did he have his Ica Pro with him? Oh, I was looking for that. But... <laughs> and no. it's, it's, it's milk that you can't drink properly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was looking for that, but no. But yeah, he had a lot of stuff there packed. But you have to give Lex Luger credit because he kept there all night. I really believe that. So the bugger couldn't even stay on the bus when he was doing the Lex Express in '93. He's not going to be sat in a car park, is he? Let's be honest. <laughs> well, no, no, exactly. <laughs> Uh, the show begins with a tag team contest, and we have undeniably one of the big name stars of their tag team division in WCW at this time, the Steiner Brothers. And they are facing the team of the Public Enemy, who got the jobbers entrance, Danny, didn't they? Oh, big time. <laughs> um, I found it very interesting noting this is Eric Bischoff opens first by saying. Um, Randy Savage has been banned from the arena, which is mm. brilliant. I love that when wrestling shows do that because it makes you think, oh, are they going to run in after or are they actually banned or are they going to find a way to sneak in? So I love that little touch from Mary Bischoff. Yes, it is good. It is good. Because again, even even if you don't see Savage, even if they give Savage the night off from a, a booking standpoint, just explaining his absence by saying he is banned because of his because of his actions, it adds to the fact that he has been behaving in this certain way, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. And it always frustrates me when they do like stupid stuff to get into the arena, like buy a ticket or something like that. When you're barred, you're actually barred from coming in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of Scott Steiner being banned from I think it was the Hall of Fame ceremony when Hogan oh, yeah. was getting inducted and there's pictures taken of behind the ticket stands and there's a picture of Scott Steiner saying do not admit uh, admit this man and all that I mean can you imagine some spotty 17 year old kid selling tickets and then Steiner comes up and says one please can you imagine them telling him no <laughs> absolutely I think the best thing about that was it was a picture of him in sunglasses so it was like... <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you know that's the best thing to do because Scott Steiner would have warned it's the middle of the night he's indoors Steiner is still wearing sunglasses you know that <laughs> oh yeah and the chainmail as well <laughs> <laughs> yes and the chainmail uh, uh this match I suppose goes very much uh, sort of I suppose paint by numbers for a Steiner's contest. They don't really sell a great deal to the opposition. I mean, Public Enemy do get some moves in, but they're made to look a little bit silly at times whilst the Steiners just kind of chuck them about like hay bales, I guess, Danny. Yeah, there's a lot of throwing, a lot of suplexing in this. It was like, this was a, to me, this was a, a um, Steiner Brothers showcase, another one. Um, Public enemy were not going to go over the Steiners. No, no, indeed. Uh, we get some quite impressive moments from Scott Steiner again, which seems to be what we're saying every week whenever he appears on Nitro. We have a press slam where he lifts his opponent right above his head and then uses him effectively as a weapon to throw at his other, other opponent, which is quite funny. Uh, Scott Steiner also hits a belly to belly overhead suplex on, I think it was Rocco Rock. Now, these guys are 300 pounds plus, so that's impressive as well, Danny, isn't it? Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, we do get a bit of a silly moment where Rocco Rock is on top of the, the corner. He's, he's on the top rope, and Rick Steiner bounces into the ropes to knock him down. But Rocco Rock reacts 
maybe a second or so after he should. So he has to almost in some kind of slapstick Monty Python-esque comedy way, throw himself bollocks first onto the top rope. And it just kind of looked ridiculous to me. Yeah, that wasn't the spot of the night. That's never going to be. But yeah, it was kind of like maybe he, he got kind of lost for a second there. Mm, yes. Um, Rocker Rock does again attempt some of his top rope moves, which I think do look quite impressive because he's a massive fella. Uh, and he, he tries one from the top, which I think ends up being like a diving headbutt of some sort. But he almost takes out the ref at this stage because the ref is walking backwards. I suppose into his his flight path, and um, I'm fairly certain Rocker Rock actually does sort of half brush against the referee as he's coming down as well, which made the referee literally jump out of his skin, which is quite funny. That was funny, <laughs> but yeah, that was really cool as well. Yeah, uh, we get a few missed Swanton bombs from Rocker Rock as well. Uh, he seems to be the t- from, from the two of Public Enemy he seems to be the one that they rise are, your eyes are drawn to a little bit more than Johnny Grunge. What what are your thoughts on the pair of them and and as as wrestlers individually, Danny? Definitely Rocker Rock is the more agile. Um you could say, I mean there's always that thing of, oh, is the Shawn Michaels Marty Gennetti factor, but I would say um in terms of both of them as singles, um, it's hard to say because I've only ever seen them uh in tag team matches. Um so I'm hoping by seeing more of that, especially matches like this, that we can see uh, more progression from both of them. Mm, yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. We do get in the middle of the, well, not in the middle of this match, as we're coming towards the finish of this match, a very interesting announcement from Eric Bischoff. And that is that things are changing in WCW. And on the 27th of May, which would be next week, I think Danny is, no, the week after. Yeah the, week, yeah, the week after. The next week is the 20th of uh, May. The 27th of May. So in two weeks' time, Nitro is going to two hours. Wow. We're finally we're on the rise, side. We're so close to mm, it. Yeah. Something else happens on the 27th as well, doesn't it? Yeah, Eric Bischoff's birthday. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Rocco Rock misses again. I mean, the guy should just give up. You know, his radar is completely out of sync. He misses another Swanton, but this time it's over the top to the outside and takes out his partner. Uh, Scott Steiner hits the always impressive Frankensteiner for the semi-predictable, but still roughly enjoyable Steiner Brothers win. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, just before the finish, we have uh, Mongo McMichael saying that he had uh, words with Ric Flair in the locker room just uh, prior to Nitro going on the air. So... I'm wondering where uh, that's going to lead up to. Yeah, this Mongo, Flair, Deborah thing has been bubbling away for a few weeks, hasn't it? Started off real, just little subtle looks from Flair. Then he'd go over to her, and it took a few weeks to build to the point where we had the champagne incident and Mongo getting a little bit more angry, and then almost laughing at Flair because his wife has behaved so ladylike and, and so on on commentary. But something's still there, Danny, isn't it? Yep, and now he's had words with him backstage. I wonder what... I'm just really excited to see this storyline progress as well. <laughs> mm, indeed, indeed. Uh, next up, we have a match between... I'll be honest with you, when this match was announced, I was a little bit like, 
okay, I wonder if Danny's going to know who this is. But then I also remembered a run that Dave Taylor, one half of this match, had. And I believe it was he was on the SmackDown brand. And I believe it was around 2005-ish. I know you'll correct me here if I'm wrong. But I then thought, right, that's right in Danny's wheelhouse. This is prime Scottish Danny SmackDown era. So here we have Chris Benoit versus Dave Taylor or Squire Dave Taylor, as he's as he's referenced here. He is part of the Blue Bloods with Stephen Regal and so on. Thoughts on Dave Taylor, Danny? And I'm not just talking in this particular match. I'm talking on, on SmackDown when you would have seen a lot more of him as well. Um, absolutely excellent. Uh, I'm a really big fan of Dave, Dave Taylor. Yeah, you was bang on 2005, 2006. Um, okay. he, he was, I really enjoyed his character work around that time because he meshed, um, even when he was wrestling smaller guys, he was like, he was still kind of doing comedy with William Regal. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to see more of him in in this Nitro um, Nights um, podcast because he's uh, I really enjoy um, Squire Dave Taylor. Yeah, yeah, he's a funny one for me because I've seen quite a bit of him in different guises, and I really like whenever I see him wrestle. And here against Benoit, I mean Chris Benoit again. I, I feel like I need to apologise for mentioning the guy's name on every podcast he comes up on for, for obvious reasons, because we're talking about somebody who at the end of his life committed some evil atrocities, whether he was fully in control of himself or not. It's, it's, it's terrible what happened and it's a, it's a horrific tragedy tragedy. However, I can't escape from the fact that Benoit growing up for me was one of the best wrestlers I saw on television. And he, in theory, I think Benoit could, could, especially in this era and then you know onwards for the next few years, Benoit could have a great match with anyone. Dave Taylor here has a great match with Benoit. And part of that, obviously, again, I put down to Benoit. But every time I watch Dave Taylor in this guy's on SmackDown, in a tag match, whatever it may well be, I always think to myself, this guy is great. Really enjoy yeah. what he does. And then as soon as the match finishes... It's almost like I completely forget he exists. Yeah. Until he randomly turns up again. I see your point. Yeah. I think that's probably a a lot of ways that um, a lot of wrestling fans uh, cope that way of like, oh, we're just kind of, he's just kind of in our minds for the moment. And then we just forget about him after until, as you say, he pops up on a random episode that you're watching. But um, I, just before we get into this match, I, I just wanted to ask you a question about both of these uh, wrestlers. Is um, w- Would you rather be chopped by Chris Benoit or uppercutted by uh, Dave Taylor? Oh, bloody hell. Um, I would probably go for uppercutted by Dave Taylor because I think as severe and as dreadful as that looks... Dave Taylor was such a good worker. It, I would stand the least chance of getting hurt. Mm. I think with Benoit, as great a worker as Benoit was, those chops are going to hurt. Yeah. I think Big Dave time. Taylor, you could probably get away with a touch less pain, maybe, just from a sort of um, working move viewpoint, potentially. What about you, Danny? I would go for the uppercut as well, because there's definitely more trust there. Um, yeah, yeah, I would go for the uppercut. But yeah. Um, excellent match. Really, uh, I wrote down this is a wrestling purist dream. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed this match. 
Yeah, I, I I thought it was great, and it's almost as well that you need to you need to pay attention to what's going on almost in the background. Sometimes there's there's an occasion where the camera is focusing on Benoit on the outside, who's who's selling a certain move, but in the background, Dave Taylor is stood on the apron of the ring, and he gets back into the ring by forward flipping over the top rope, lands on his feet, and then gives the little V sign to the crowd, and. I mean, he's, he, he doesn't look like he should be able to do anything like that. You no, know? And to, be, to be fair, he doesn't look like... He's, he's not got the greatest physique in the world. I mean, I'm in no position to judge. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fat mess, but he, he's, he's, not, he's not got the greatest physique in the world. He's here, I believe he's in his early 40s. Uh, he's got a pretty ropey dye job on his hair trying to hide his grey. His ring gear isn't the most flattering. He's got he's got the silly robe as well from the Blue Bloods that is kind of a throwback to maybe the more early 90s, late 80s character kind of side of things that people would have done in the American wrestling scene. He doesn't look like he has any right to be as good as he is in the ring. But That's he's fantastic. Yeah, that is a great point, mate. It's like, I mean... He's just like, you would not think you're going to get a brilliant match out of him. He kind of just looks like a scrub. But And then he's you fast forward and he's like one of the best workers on this night, especially on this episode of Nitro. But mm. yeah, big fan of Dave Taylor. Yeah, yeah, I've enjoyed it. I hope we see more of him. I, I imagine there'll be a lot more of him on Saturday nights than Nitro. But then again, we're in, in two weeks' time, I mean, obviously we've got Nitro and a pay-per-view. And then we go... Well, sorry, the other way around, isn't it? Pay-per-view, then a Nitro. And then we're going two hours. So there's more airtime to share around. So perhaps we will see more of him. I hope so. Yeah, definitely. But again, that aspect of having to keep an eye out in the background sometimes or concentrate to where maybe you're being not led to by the camera work, the production and the commentators does hit this match in a similar way to how it hit the Malenko Liger match last week, because we're getting quite a bit of Hogan talk again. We're getting some Lex Luger talk. And then we get a bit more Ric Flair talk. And then we hear that Randy Savage is outside the building. So Mongo decides he's going to go and talk with Savage. So one third of our commentary team halfway through this match, just literally Dames tools and buggers off, Danny. <laughs> that I mean, that is a perfect example. I remember on ECW in 2008, Mike Adamley just and Taz just uh, on an episode, they just got up and just walked off of the um, rest of the show. And it, this reminded me of that. It was like this is so unprofessional. Um, I know it's for storyline purposes and things like that, but I, this could have couldn't they have just waited till after the match. Yeah, potentially. I suppose there's two ways of looking at it. You, if you wait until after the match or you wait until a non-wrestling segment, you don't harm the the commentary team for when the match is taking place. But on the other side of that coin, you've got a three-man booth. Bischoff is quite comfortable being the play-by-play guy. Lord knows how great Bobby Heenan is in any role that you give him. He is just superb. Mongo leaving the three-man booth, I don't think, harmed the commentary. But... Yeah. I think it was a dramatic moment because he had upped and left in the middle of a match. So to me, it, in this scenario, I think it does work because it doesn't affect the the production of the actual TV show because of what's left there with, with Mongo's absence. But yeah. it's still dramatic enough 
because he has upped sticks and left his post, that it sticks in your mind, oh my God, what's Mongo doing? So I, I almost think you kind of, in this scenario, got the best of both worlds, which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I can see that point as well. It's like, um, uh, I can imagine some fans going home and saying, oh my God, Mongo left, so we better go and tune in. I wonder what he's going to be up to. Where is he going to go? Imagine if you're in the live crowd as well, because that you that really wouldn't make a difference whether Mongo is there or not. But you would think, where's Mongo going backstage? Is he going to go and attack Ric Flair, or is he just going to go to the toilet? Yeah, we never he, know. <laughs> he just needs a whiz. He's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, the match ultimately is won by... Chris Benoit, as you can imagine, he's, he's part of the Horseman and he's, he's got a prominent role on the show. Um, but, I mean, there is a lot of good stuff here. I, I advise people, to, if they've got a couple of minutes spare, go and check out this match. I mean, ultimately, if you're listening to this, I advise you to follow along the Nitros with us. And I know plenty of people out there do, which I'm hugely grateful for. Uh, Benoit wins with a Dragon Suplex or a full Nelson suplex with a neck bridge, but dragon suplex it gets referred to as. And I love that move. I love any suplex with a neck bridge. And I think Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, and certain others look so good doing it. Big time. Yeah. And um, I just want to give a shout out to Dave Taylor because he hit an amazing electric chair in this match as well. And the electric chair um, as a move, uh, it's, what do you think about it? Si? I mean, to me, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of like the crisscross to me because someone could just get out of it so easily, <laughs> but um, they don't. Um, okay, so just to clarify, the electric chair, you're talking about somebody being sat on somebody else's shoulders and they just drop back and, and they hit the match, yes? Yeah. Right. I've got no massive issue with it because I don't think we see it very often. Yeah. I think if it was used in a lot of matches... First of all, it's quite it's quite a big drop because you, you look at, say, for example, the average guy in wrestling will, will say for argument's sake, just because it's a round figure, six foot tall. Yeah. You're sat on a six foot tall guy's shoulders. You're effectively falling, or your shoulders and neck are effectively falling from what? Seven, eight foot in the air and hitting the mat. Yeah. So from a kayfabe standpoint, it should be an effective move from a i suppose fan standpoint it's going to be quite spectacular to see this guy falling from that height and i agree with you it it could in theory be relatively simple for somebody to get out of but if it's not used very often i think you kind of get away with that yeah I can understand that as well because when I was uh, when I saw it, I was thinking, how amazing would that look if the giant did it or something, oh, someone like that? Yeah, even bigger, much much more height. Uh, yeah. you know, I suppose from there you also get. My mind goes straight to King of the Ring '93 uh, with with Bret Hitman Hart and the fantastic performance he put on at King of the Ring '93, uh, beating Scott Hall in the quarterfinals. Uh, Mr. Perfect in the semi-finals and then defeating Bam Bam Bigelow in the final itself to win the King of the Ring tournament. Uh, anyone who wants to see how great Bret, Bret Hart actually once upon a time was should have a look at that as a snippet of his career. There's so many more examples, of course, but that one there, he's wrestling three different types of matches in the same night and it's quite spectacular. The finish to the actual King of the Ring final itself is a victory roll. So it, Bret Hart is 
basically in a electric chair position on Bam Bam Bigelow's shoulders, rolls forward, takes Bam Bam with him, hooks the legs and pins him to win the King of the Ring tournament. I find that less believable than an electric chair itself. <laughs> I'll get your point. But yeah, that, that, um, uh, yeah, I completely understand because Bam, why didn't Bam Bam Bigelow just like get up out of mm. that position? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think with anything in wrestling, even stuff uh, that I've criticized in the past on, on this show and other shows, for example, the bear hug, for example, the crisscross, I think if it's used really sparingly and done in the right context by the right people, this is hugely important, by the right people, you can get away with it. For example, bear hug, for example, We've seen bear hugs applied in uh, during this this watchback of Nitro. We we've seen bear hugs applied on NXT Rise and Fall. Looking back on NXT with Joshua Goodwin on the SJP World Media Network, and we've seen bear hugs applied all of all throughout wrestling on chain wrestling when we've had you know gone to wherever the the, the listeners vote us to go look at. Sometimes the guys look too small to do a bear hug. Now, I'm not criticizing a wrestler for size. I don't care. If you entertain me, that's all I wish for. I don't care if you're six foot eight or five foot two. Couldn't give a shit. As long as you're good at what you do, you're not hurting anyone in the ring, and you're entertaining me and my family, that's all I can ask for. However, when you see someone who might be referenced as a potential cruiserweight, and I'm not using that in any way, shape, or form as a derog- derogatory term, I'm not criticizing people for being that size. But to me, it's a case of, I suppose to quote The Rock, knowing your role. If you're if you're a cruiserweight, it doesn't matter how strong you're billed as. You could be billed as the strongest, you know, pound for pound, the strongest guy in, in, in the company. If you're still only 190 pounds and you apply a bear hug to somebody who a great deal of the time in professional wrestling might be a touch bigger than you, I think it looks like shit. So it takes yeah. me out the moment. And if it takes me out the moment, I worry how it's going to affect my youngest daughter when she's watching as well, who still, I think, semi-believes in what she's seeing. If you look at someone like a Brock Lesnar or someone like the Giant, we'll use Brock Lesnar as the example because of his sheer muscle mass. If he applies a bear hug on someone and they pass out, go limp, he wins the match because they can't you know, answer the referee, whatever, that's believable. And again, it depends on how it looks. We've seen the big show, sorry, the giant. I keep doing that. I don't know what's wrong with me. We've seen the giant use a bear hug in certain matches in, in, in the run of this show, in the run of Nitro Nights. And despite his size, it looks like shit. So I suppose it depends on who's doing it to who and in what context with regards to certain moves. The electric chair, I think, really fits into that category as well. Yeah. I've got one for you then. Bronco Buster. Well, piss off, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) I hate the Bronco Buster. Absolutely despise it. It just takes me out of the moment. It's not one for me. I don't care who's I don't care who's doing it. Well, apart from maybe when Tory Wilson used to do it. I didn't mind that so much. (laughs) (laughs) Just on a side note, you said that on last Monday and on the Friday somebody used it on SmackDown. See, and this is why I don't watch WWE. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> this is why i spend my time talking about nearly 30 year old wrestling with you instead <laughs> <laughs> on the note of the electric chair as well you gotta think that we, we've seen two tag teams qu- quite a great deal on 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 nitro nights here that their 
double team finisher is part of an electric chair or the electric chair, sorry, makes up part of a double team finisher. We have the, uh, the Steiners who of course use the bulldog off the top rope where the guy who is receiving the move is effectively in an electric chair position, but he's, I suppose most of the time he's going forwards rather than backwards. And we have the Legion of Doom, the road warriors uh, and throughout their whole career, the doomsday device was their finisher and it's Hawk clotheslining somebody off animal shoulders. Now, I've never had an issue with the Doomsday Device. But when you break it down and look at it, the guy sat on Animal's shoulders is waiting to take the clothesline. So in theory, that should be less believable than an electric chair, which could just be a case of pick you up and drop you. Yeah. But I don't know. Again, it depends on the circumstances, Danny. Definitely, mate. Yeah, so there we go. Um, as we mentioned... Chris Benoit wins this match with a dragon suplex. We then cut to Mean Gene, who's outside in uh, the daylight still. This is not a show in, in, in the nighttime, in the evening, it seems. It's the daylight, and he's outside on, uh, I suppose, a back door, a staff entrance, potentially, to the arena with a few security guards. And Randy Savage turns up in full gear, because, of course, it's Randy Savage. Why wouldn't he? I imagine he goes to the co-op to pick up a pint of milk in his newspaper, looking like that. Well, I hope so, anyway. And uh, he's getting told, you're not allowed in. And that's when Mongo arrives. That's when Steve McMichael arrives. And he basically tells Randy Savage, don't worry, he has a plan. And then calls Randy Savage baby a lot. (laughs) This was brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed this. But once again, Mean Gene's microphone problems ruining what could have been a great promo by Macho Man. But I think I found it funny how Mongo McMichael got all his um, his promo working. Yeah, and I'll tell you what as well. It, it, the guy's been a, a football player. He's been brought in as a commentator, um, according to Eric Bischoff. I, I don't know how accurate this is, or even if he still sticks to this story now, but you listened to Bischoff talk a few years ago in, in certain interviews. The idea of McMichael coming in as a commentator was to add a more legitimate sports feel to their product as opposed to what was on the other side with McMahon and, and whoever else, Jerry Lawler, which felt cartoony and wrestling. They wanted this to feel like a more legitimate sporting contest. So, you know, the Yeti obviously helps with that, I guess. But um, the, the, the Michael being there was supposed to add that. Now, he's been a, a, an American football player. He's been a commentator. But here he is interacting with Mean Gene, security guards pulling at him, and Randy Savage, and he doesn't look out of place to me. He looks very confident, very, uh, you know, very assertive in what he wants to do and say, Danny. Absolutely. That's what I wrote down. He cut a great wrestling promo. He was, uh, his facials, his body language, uh, him pointing at the camera. It was a very, very um, solid wrestling promo. And he has a plan, doesn't he? Oh, yes. That's what I can't wait to see what that is. <laughs> also, did you notice Randy Savage's elbow? No. What, what was well, up with it? I don't know if this is a long-term injury or if this is the same elbow that he's had taped up over the last few weeks because he had a few problems with it, didn't he? But the actual yeah. point of his elbow that's facing the camera, it looks like somebody's cut a, a golf ball in half and popped it under his skin. There's a big, literally, you know, perfectly you know, half-symmetrical swelling on his elbow where he's obviously had this, this, I think it was a staph infection or some other form of injury there. So, yeah, it was really very prominent sticking out on the point of his elbow there. It was quite noticeable for me. 
Oh, let's hope he makes the pay-per-view. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, after all this craziness with Gene, Mongo, and the Macho Man, we have another promo telling us, coming soon to WCW, Blood Runs Cold. Danny, what are you thinking? Could it be part of Mongo's uh, plan? Oh, maybe, maybe. Um, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk us through what you thought about what we had next, because this is a match that I never thought I would see or potentially want to see. But I don't think it was that bad. Talk us through it, Danny. So next we have VK Wall Street versus the Nature Boy Ric Flair. And uh, the first thing I wrote down is, really, is VK Wall Street still a thing? I thought that was just uh, kind of just for the opening of Nitro, just to take a, a dig at Vince McMahon. But um, <laughs> yeah, this like you, this was a match I just flies under the radar. Um, it was, and the thing that point that um, was made. The most prominence to me was um, Wall Street just getting a lot of uh, dominance in this match. I don't know if you noticed this. So it was like yeah. it was not this. Uh, when you think you see these two on a um, on a wrestling card, you think, "Oh, this is an easy win for Ric Flair. This is easy match squash." Not that at all. There was a lot of Ric Flair just um, being on the defense and um, VK Wall Street being on the offense. It was yeah, it was very. It was very, um, you could kind of say this was a head fuck match. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, my mindset is almost twofold in this, I think. Ric Flair, it seems, with what we've seen with the likes to his recent matches with Sting, especially his matches with the Giants we had. We had a couple back-to-back, didn't we, on, on Nitro and so on. And then this one here. His opponent comes out of it looking... 10 times better than we anticipate. So yeah. I don't know if again is part of the the Ric Flair world tour of making his opponent look good. He seems very motivated from that aspect at the moment, which is something Flair, to be fair, was was always very motivated to do. But also there's history here. Uh VK Wall Street is IRS in WWF in the early 90s, uh, Mike Rotundo or Rotunda, depending on which territory he was working in. And he goes way back with Flair. To the old Jim Crockett days, the NWA days, and so on, the the very early Starcades, and you know he used to tag with Kevin Sullivan and and various other people in the Varsity Club, and he was in the same territories as Flair, and especially with Jim Crockett with, with their television, they were quite prominent on there as well. So I imagine there's quite a bit of history between Flair and and that family. Yeah. So what you hear sometimes from people especially enhancement talent, I guess, when you hear shoot interviews with certain enhancement talent who work with Flair, they say that they've got no right to get anything in their enhancement talent. They're there to make Flair look good. But if Flair liked you, he would give you as much as he felt he would, he wanted to that particular night. And he would allow you to go out and do certain things to put yourself over. So I wonder if this is part Flair working to make his opponent look good like we've had in the previous however many nitros and part flair thinking this guy's my mate from 1984 or whatever it may well be i'm plucking a date out of my head there at random but and he thinks to himself okay i like this guy let's work a match rather than me just chop you and bang the figure four on because there is quite a lot of counters back and forth it's actual wrestling we're seeing here isn't it yeah definitely now i had no idea about that um 
uh, VK Wall Street being in um, being Ric Flair's uh, in the same territory years back. I just thought he came in as IRS in the WWF and then came over to here. Um, it's just like he's put, he's very uh, um, prominent wrestler and things like that, but I just can't get past the gimmick with him. I mean, it's a it's a play on Vince McMahon, yeah, and it kind of ruins it for me. Like, not kind of ruins it, but it's like um, you just can't get past it. Like him, this is a Vince McMahon. It's like trying to see um, Rick Bogner as a wrestler. You can't get past it because all you see is fake Razor. Um, <laughs> It's very much like that. Yeah, it's like this. I mean, I really I think they should just drop the the um, VK Wall Street persona and just have him as a normal wrestler. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. But I, I suppose... I, I don't I don't want to come across critical to, to, to Mike Rotunda here because I've, I've enjoyed watching some of his stuff. I mean, there's, there's a match he had with Rick Steiner or a little bit of a series with Rick Steiner over the television title. Back in the, I want to say mid eighties, eighty six, maybe eighty seven, something like that. Before he became IRS, anyway. And he was part of this varsity club with Kevin Sullivan, and and so on. I think Rick Steiner was actually part of that group before he, before they split as well. And they used to wear the jackets like the Steiners did with with the university letters on the varsity jackets and and so on. And then obviously we had him as IRS, so he's wrestling in a suit, and it's very much the gimmick was effectively him. Um, the, the, his wrestling ability wasn't really showcased in that role. The gimmick was all he became about. And now we've got this side of it as well. As much as I enjoy watching Mike Rotunda's earlier work in Jim Crockett promotions and, and the AWA in the mid-80s as well, and then you see him as IRS, and then you see him in this role now, he never, in any of these guises, really screams charisma. He never really puts forward, I, I suppose, a, a big character. You know, his, his promos are okay. You know, he always used to point at the camera and tell people to pay their taxes and, and, and so on. But he always, to my memory anyway, and I'm, I'm doing this literally off the top of my head. I've got no research in front of me or anything, so I, bet, I apologize if I get stuff wrong. But he almost always kind of had somebody else there who could talk for him if needed. Yeah. So in the Varsity Club, which was a big one of his first breakout roles, just purely because of the television that Jim Crockett Promotions had at the time, Kevin Sullivan would do a lot of the talking because Sullivan could talk. Uh, Rotunda could also talk a bit, but Sullivan was predominantly the guy who would do a great deal of it. In Money Incorporated, he you know he was teaming with DiBiase. DiBiase could talk. DiBiase would do a great deal of the talking. Um, when we had, you'll have to remind me, Danny, because my mind's going blank. When we had the the Million Dollar Man's stable in the mid nineties, Million Dollar Corporation. Money Incorporated. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah um, Money Incorporated. There was a yeah. group of them, and it was Bam Bam Bigelow, and I think Tatanka joined at one stage as well. King Kong uh, Bandy. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of the group of them. Again, Diviossi at that point was retired, so he was the mouthpiece. He was the manager. So you never really had Mike Rotunda in a role in his career where he had to do a great deal of the talking. So that to me makes me think it's one of two things. One, he's just always fell into these roles. So he's never had an opportunity to show that he has a bit of charisma or two. And I think this is more likely he hasn't really got that about him in the first place. 
So he ends up in these roles to kind of hide his shortcomings and then promote his 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 you know stronger abilities. Yeah. So with regards to ditching the VK Wall Street gimmick and just letting him wrestle, I think we're gonna get he would get very much lost in the shuffle. No, uh, that's a great point, mate. It's that he you're kind of saying like he needs a character. Yeah, and as as stale as this character could potentially be, I, again, I don't know where this heads, but they could ramp it back up again now because they're going two hours, and we know over the course of the next eighteen months, the the Monday Night War, as it's termed, between Raw and Nitro, really hypes up over the next sort of you know, year and a half. Maybe a character having a dig at Vince McMahon could become more prominent. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But... No, that's a great point, as well as especially with uh, Vince McMahon becoming an on-air character soon. Mm. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, ultimately, Flair wins with a cheating figure four, doesn't he? Yeah, woman helps him uh, just um, kind of like pull, pulls his arms uh, to get more leverage on the figure four, and um, yeah, rotunda, well, up VK Wall Street uh, taps, and uh, we get Flair with a rare win with the figure four because he hasn't won too many matches with that actually move. <laughs> no, no, he hasn't. Um... Flag, you know, he's, he kind of goads Mongo a bit more, I guess. Yeah. And we're getting more, I suppose, thrown onto that fire there. But it basically takes us to our main event, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. We have the Giant versus Lex Luger for the WCW World title. And I, I find this fascinating, the way this whole thing was structured and the way this whole match was done. Because you all, you, you still have Ric Flair at this stage, he's back out at his VIP section in his wrestling gear and his robe, but it's much closer to ringside this time. You've got the giant, I think, dominating the match right from the beginning and never really loses control for any big portion of the contest. Uh, the giant effectively no-sells a great deal of Luger's offense as well. And then we get a spot that finishes the match at the outside. Talk us through your thoughts from this from you know running through this match danny from from sort of beginning to end uh, and how how the whole thing goes and how you viewed it as somebody who is still quite new to some of this wcw programming i really enjoyed this because it told the story of like lex lucas kind you can kind of say he's been avoiding the giant i mean this is a world championship match also he's been but finally he's banged to rights he's been camping out on the street um, he can he can't run away anymore. So he was like, "It's all or nothing. I have to wrestle the giant." So a lot of this match is spent with him trying to power slam the giant, but he can't. And then he uh, so he just tries alternative measures. Like he'll run into him. He'll try to axe handle him. Um, yeah, this was like a, it was all about telling the story. Mm. There was a big moment for me on commentary as well. That in a way, I suppose it was one of Bischoff's digs at the other channel but i got a bit of a kick out of it because it throws back to previous roles in luger's career he mentions bischoff this is sorry he mentions the running forearm on commentary and he says it reminds me of when luger was hitting yokozuna with that running forearm and knocking people out all over the place on, on the other channel the other side or however he worded it and as he's doing this the giant simply no sells it which again is <laughs> 
is a little subtle way, or maybe not so subtle, which is Bischoff's way of saying we're better than them, I think. Yeah, I, I noticed that down as well. It was like, um, yeah, to, the fact they actually named Yokozuna by name as well mm. was quite shocking as well. But yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that little dig. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, eventually, the fight heads to the outside. The giant grabs Luger in well, in the choke slam position, I guess. But I think this week we see a couple of choke slams. Last week we see we saw quite a few choke slams. I think he's almost altered the way he does this here because he, he's got them by the throat. Obviously, it's a choke slam, but he almost jumps and comes down on his knees as he's doing it, and the opponent doesn't take it as flat on their back as we've seen other people do this they almost take it more on their shoulders and it looks more like he's spiking them into the mat i think this looks a bit more dangerous but i think it looks quite cool danny what are your thoughts that's a great observation size like there's definitely a difference in the giants um younger days of being uh doing a choke slam compared to what he would do today where it's more like he just throws the guy down uh, because he doesn't want to get down and hurt his knees because he's obviously older. So, yeah, that is a great observation. Um, uh, one thing uh, I found funny was, um, and I always find this funny, is like when a wrestler wants to choke slam or throw someone through a table, why do they clear the table off first? Well, this is what I was going to point out as well, because it's almost like, Maybe maybe it's a bit of an experience by the giant here. Because hmm. it's almost like things are done in the wrong order. Because the giant grabs Luger and then walks him over to Flair's VIP section. And then starts clearing the table while still holding on to Luger's throat. And Luger and Jimmy Hart are both just kind of stood there like, shit, this is taking a while. And it all looks a little bit awkward as he's throwing the candles away, um, clearing the food away. He even takes the... A tablecloth off, which I'm sure Ric Flair was very grateful for. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you're right. In a real scrap, if you had a, not that a choke slam would happen very often in a real fight, but it, you know, for, for argument's sake, if you're choke slamming someone, why would you clear the table? You're 100% yeah. correct. But it's just one of those moments, like the Irish whip, I guess, where you have to just suspend your disbelief. It is what yeah. it is. No, but okay. here, it's. It, I think it could have worked where if the giant choke slammed him in the ring, or laid him out on the floor, and then went and kicked everything off the table, and then choke slammed him, rather than holding him at the at arm's length for what felt like half the show, because it made Luger just look so inept, just stood yeah. there, you know, at the end of the giant's, you know, long arm, just like, oh my goodness, this is. T-. He might as well have checked his wristwatch whilst he was there. It was taking so long, <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> I don't think this is what Lex Luger was camping for outside all night. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Uh, the choke slam happens, though, and Luger is sent through the table. Um, and then Sting arrives through the crowd, oddly, which I don't quite know what purpose that was. Perhaps he was sat out there. Perhaps, perhaps he had a ticket to watch the event, but he, he's a bit short on change, so he bought one of the cheaper seats. I don't know. But Sting comes through the crowd, and he's trying to save Luger. And he's sending the giant away as Luger um, is led there in a bit of a mess on the floor after taking what looked like a relatively nasty bump. But I think it was fairly safe. I'm not sure. Um, and then Mean Gene Oakland turns up with a microphone. And I love this because Sting starts shouting, Not now, Gene! 
<laughs> and that was brilliant. <laughs> he was like, get out of here, not now. <laughs> mm, absolutely fantastic. But um, we were saying before we recorded, there, there was a um, a bit in Lex Luger's book where he actually wrote about this. Um, I don't know if you want to get into it now or if you want yes. to get this. Yes, because yes, I'm, I'm completely unaware of this and you said you were going to tell me as we record. So please let me know, Danny, what was said by uh, by the narcissist himself. So from Lex Luger's book, Wrestling with the Devil, um, very early on when he's talking about his uh, worst, career, his worst career injury he ever suffered was actually this uh, table spot. He wrote in 2013, just another day at the office, challenging my inner real Mick Foley. I landed, head, I landed so hard I had a three-day headache, wrenched back, injured neck, left hip, and had to have pieces of broken champagne glasses removed from my back, all for your viewing pleasure. Bloody hell. I mean, does that sound a little bit like woe is me, maybe? Yeah, it kind of does, but I do really think he was injured because even if you look at that footage as well, he is not moving. Um mm. A big shout out to Eric Bischoff as well, who sold this brilliantly on the announce table. Yes, because we go back to the commentary team after this, don't we? We get a shot of the giant walking away, shouting at the camera, and we go back to the commentary team, and nobody's talking. Yeah. And I think it's a great use of silence, or even a great use of just a pause before speaking. Yeah. And, and I think it works really well, because... Bischoff looks genuinely concerned. Um, Mongo, who's always a little bit more on the wild side, is is just stunned and amazed by what he's seeing because it was crazy. And it's Heenan who speaks first. And Heenan's looking at the other two for them to go. They don't speak. And Heenan just goes, well, if no one's going to talk, I will. Which, of course, the, the heel commentator that Bobby Heenan is trying to portray, that's what they would do. They wouldn't give a shit about the baby face who's gone through the table. Yeah, that's a great point, mate. It's it was just a very kind of you could say somber ending to Nitro. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, it, this is the go home show for Slambury. Our next episode of Nitro Nights will be covering the pay per view. Bloody love pay per view day, Danny. We're yeah. going to be covering Slambury ninety six on our next episode. So we will get to our normal, I suppose run through of the card in a moment where I asked Danny if he knows any of the matches on the pay-per-view and it's really to test how well WCW have sold the pay-per-view to us because Danny's not got it in front of him he's not pre-researched this it's a case of going by what Mr. Bischoff and his buddies have informed us will you know we will get for our you know 25 quid or whatever it may well have been back in that time before we get to that point though Let's give this show, this Nitro, our our final summary and our final reviews, uh, our good points and our bad points, our positives and our negatives, with our woos and our oh brothers, Danny. Woo! Brother, 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 brothers, brother. Woo! Brother. I'll go first this week, sir. You carry on. Yep. So my woo is definitely the way, even though it was a, injury, a legitimate injury by um, Ovalex Luger, the way that Eric Bischoff sold it, the way that Sting came out, screamed at Mean Gene, um, the way that the crowd was stunned, silenced because Lex was not moving. Um, I loved that ending, and it was it made a big change from the chaotic 
ending we always get on Nitro. Um, this was a big change. Yeah, that was my woo. Fair enough. Uh, mine is very similar because it comes from that same segment. It's the fact that the Giant looked really strong. Going into a world title match with the guy who I still think is the most popular wrestler on the roster in Sting. He's, gonna, he's the big bad heel. And he looks, I think, as strong as he has done in many, many, many weeks because of these moments with Luger. So, yeah, the Giant looking strong going into the pay-per-view. Uh, your old brother, my friend, what didn't you enjoy? The same thing. It was had to be the fact that Lex Luger got injured. And it also makes me worried about, especially after reading about how injured he was in his book, it makes me wonder, is he going to be at the pay-per-view side? That's what I'm worried ah, about. Interesting. Okay. Uh, my old brother is the show in and the build in general. This is the go-home show for their pay-per-view. And obviously, we watch Nitro in order, um, show by show. It feels like they peaked with their build-up a couple of weeks ago. And this is just falling off that peak now. This feels a little bit flat going into the pay-per-view for me. It doesn't... I mean, if this was an episode of Raw or SmackDown or whatever it was, the last show going into a WWF pay-per-view, you would have the commentators screaming to buy the pay-per-view. You'd have every match getting plugged left, right, and center. This just felt, and I'm not meaning the ending of the of this episode of Nitro specifically, I'm talking about the whole episode, just felt a little flat for a go-home show. Yeah. An interesting question. Could the Lex Luger injury um, have altered this uh, ending? Maybe we would have got a Sting promo to hype the uh, his championship match. Oh, interesting. I don't know. I got no idea. I, I I imagine Luger going through the table and the giant walking off, looking the way, looking how strong as he did, was probably the plan. Yeah. Uh, I'm obviously neither you nor I or anyone listening was in the room. So, well, unless yeah. Luger is listening, we'll have to ask him. But um, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I just found it weird because Sting came out. He was all dressed up. He had his face paint on. He had his wrist tape on. So I was just thinking automatically he's either there for a match or a promo, but he didn't appear the entire night. And then mm. apart from this little uh, five-second cameo. So I'm just wondering if yeah. Yeah, it was a bit. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. Good spot. Good spot. Um, overall then, hit, miss or middling, Danny? I'm going with a middle one again, uh, Si. How about you, mate? Yeah, I agree. It's a middle for me as well. It, it's not a show I'd rush back to watch, but at the same time, I don't think it was dreadful. So, yeah, yeah middle's fair enough. Yeah, I, w- I would go back to see this t- for that um, Lex Luger injury. Okay, you sadistic bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so then, obviously, the Slambury pay-per-view is dominated by the Battle Bowl, the Lethal Lottery format, where we've had random tag teams or random combinations drawn over the last few Nitros and Saturday nights that they talk about on Nitro. Odd combinations and so on facing each other. The winners of these random drawn tag team matches go on to the Battle Bowl itself and the winner of that receives some kind of award or hopefully a title match or a ring or a nice certificate or I don't freaking know. Um, there's obviously one or two other matches on the card as well. Danny, what do you remember from how WCW have been informing us is on the show 
that we'll be talking about next week? Well, just solely due to the build, um, it would have to be Sting versus the Giants. Mm-hmm. And I definitely remember Arn Anderson and Eddie Guerrero versus Ric Flair and Macho Man because of the build. And it's weird. It's a weird one because two weeks ago, they were promoting, um, WWE were promoting Slambury a lot. And then for the last two weeks, they kind of haven't been. They haven't announced mm. like they had that big presentation with Mean Gene um, and the two ladies and things like that. They could have kind of done that here as well, but they didn't have either didn't have time or or something like that. But yeah, the big ones for me are that are that big tag team match and the World Championship uh, match. How about you, mate? Yeah, um, obviously Sting Giant stands out. I know we're getting a cruiserweight title match, but I don't know who's in it. Because we kept getting told it might be Pillman, it might mm. be, uh, it might be Liger, it might be Malenko, it might, yeah, and then they got this new champion now. So there's a cruiserweight match, but I don't know who's in it. Yeah, I know the Road Warriors are on the opposite teams, so Animal will effectively be wrestling Hawk, but I can't tell you who their partners are. Uh, I know that the Steiner brothers are on opposite teams because those things kind of stand out to me. So they're going to be wrestling against each other. I don't know who Scott's partner is, but I think Rick Steiner is teaming with the booty man. Oh, no. I think <laughs> again, this could be completely wrong when we watch the pay-per-view next week. Um, and I know there's two actual tag teams that are been drawn together because I call bullshit on it being a random draw from that standpoint. And obviously <laughs> we all know it. So we all know how it works and the public enemy are one of them. They've been drawn alongside each other. And I, I want to say fire and ice yeah. have been drawn together. I think it is. Yeah. I was going to say that fire and ice. I um, think, I think they are because they're okay. so heavily, they were so heavily pushed a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Um, yeah. It's either them or the Harlem heat. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be interesting. Anyway, we've got a title match. We've got the Battle Bowl format itself. We've got a lot of people on the card because there's a lot of tag matches. So everyone's getting a shot at being on the pay-per-view. We get to see the the new Cruiserweight champion as well. So I'm looking forward to to sitting down and reviewing Slamboree 96 with you next week, my friend. Me too, mate. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the Giant is booked against Ding. Mm. Will he be especially heading in, uh, seeing what he did to his best friend or his supposed best friend. Um, how will Sting react to that? Yes, yes. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, so then, Danny, do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find you online and all the brilliant shows you're involved in, please? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on One Man's Meet with the great Chris Bellis. You can hear me on Back When with the great Ty Peters. And you can hear me here next week where we'll be talking Stambury 96 with the great Cy Powell. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. You're very kind. Um, you can hear that next week with Danny and I by following this show at Nitro underscore Nights on Facebook and Twitter. And the network itself is at SJP World Media that carries this show and loads of other shows as well. So much that I can't even list. It would take too long. TV shows, um, podcasts covering movies, podcasts covering music, podcasts covering retro wrestling, uh, historic wrestling, modern day wrestling, so much there. Just chuck it all a follow at SJP World Media. Chuck it a follow on Twitter, on Facebook. 
follow it on well subscribe follow whatever you need to do on all your podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode when it drops uh, and subscribe to the youtube channel as well and when you do all that leave us a big fat five star review on all of these platforms it really helps the network out a huge amount so that'd be massively appreciated and again at nitro underscore nights for this show itself danny it's been a blast my friend looking forward to slamboree bud me too mate see you next week I'll see you next week as well. And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening.